0: Welcome to the Diabetes What to Know podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. We have a wonderful episode for you tonight with endocrinologist Dr. Jill Trenasti about hormones and the science of weight loss. Dr. Trenasti, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. What are the numbers that a person with type 2 diabetes should be paying attention to?
1: I think it depends on what you're using to treat your diabetes. So um, our Canadian guidelines suggest that you should be checking your sugars the same number of times that you're injecting insulin, for example. So if you're doing one injection a day of a long-acting insulin, you should be checking your sugar at least once a day in the morning. If you're taking insulin at your meals, you should be checking your sugar before you take that insulin at your meals. there is more opportunity now to have more insight into our glycemic control with continuous glucose monitors and that type of thing. Um, but it's about working with your health provider to decide how you're using that and and how to optimize that, how you're using the data, what those numbers mean to you, how you're acting on those, um, or whether you're just doing it to gather data before the appointment. So I have some patients who are not injecting any medications or perhaps not injecting insulin, um, but we use something like a continuous glucose monitor for two weeks before an appointment, or they check their sugars more frequently before the appointment um, to see what's going on. Or maybe if we make a change to the medication, they check a bit more regularly after that change to see how that change has impacted their glycemic control. So it really should be individualized to the patient.
0: So I know a lot of people dread doctor's appointments because, you know, maybe their numbers aren't where they want them to be, and they're afraid their doctor's going to judge them. What would you want them to know as a doctor?
1: For me, and I always say this to my patients, like this is not about judgment, this is about assessing where we are and how we move forward. And I think that it's not up to the patients to reduce their judgment from the physicians, it's up to us as physicians to reframe how we are approaching our visits. If you're stressed out by numbers, and some of my patients are, you can say when you go in, like, I don't want to be weighed or I don't want this done today. If that's not where you're at, if you know your blood pressure is always high in the in your physician's office, maybe check it a few times. Bring that in so that, you know, if you sit down right out of the parking lot after a stressful drive and your blood pressure is elevated, nobody's making a change based on that. So you do have some control in, in the information that you bring forward as well.
0: So for your patients with diabetes who aren't on continuous glucose monitoring, when do you encourage that they check blood sugar? And kind of like, what are the things you're having them look for?
1: It kind of depends on where they're at with their medications. If we're making medication changes, if we're making lifestyle changes, if they want to see the effect of that. Maybe we're checking your fasting sugars. You're trying to reduce your snack at night or change it to a lower carbohydrate snack. And we're seeing what the impact is on that. So I just think that every test should have a reason And so there should be something that we're looking for and not just arbitrarily poking fingers at random times of days, because that's not comfortable. And that data can be very challenging to interpret. So, you know, working with your physician to decide, okay, why am I doing this? What are we looking at? And when you have a better idea, a more specific reason why you're doing something, you're more likely to do it.
0: And do you encourage people to check in pairs, like before and after a meal or kind of before they go to sleep and first thing in the morning?
1: I think it depends where the issue is. So if we have been seeing really high numbers after lunch, but they're having a mid-morning snack and they haven't been checking before lunch, then yeah, it might be important to get a before and after. If somebody is on insulin before a meal and their sugars are going up really high after a meal, we may be focusing on trying to adjust the insulin dose at that meal or the carbohydrate ratio that they're using. Uh, to calculate their insulin dose, so again, it just depends very specifically what we're trying to uh, what what we're trying to achieve with those tests.
0: Dr. Tanasti, when you're working with people to help them reach a healthier weight, what are the main things you want them to focus on?
1: One of the main things that's most important for my patients is shifting away from just using a number on the scale as a measure of success and thinking more about making behavior changes and allowing those behavior changes that they've made to become the focus, to become the goals. The goal isn't I want to lose five pounds or I've lost five pounds. It's I have drank water every single day this week. I've gone for a walk three days this week and letting those things be the measure of success and focusing more on behaviors than the number in the scale. And I say this to my patients all the time, like that's just the force of gravity pushing you down towards the earth. And it's a number on the box, um, which really we've just assigned this arbitrary meaning to. And so we know that that people get more satisfaction with their daily lives. They get more function in their daily lives and, in, and better longevity when they focus on behavior changes.
0: So speaking of those behavior changes, you have a worksheet that you encourage your patients to use at home. What are the things you ask people to track on that worksheet? Like what are the behaviors that matter? It's more designed
1: to look at the various behaviors that are associated with a healthy lifestyle and that can eventually lead to weight loss if that's the patient's goal. Um, And it's mostly meant for patients to look at it and say, what am I doing well now and what do I want to focus on setting as a goal? So I have them broken down into things that people should do daily, people should do three times a week, and that people should do maybe twice a week in the daily there's calorie deficit. Maybe patients don't want to start there, but I have, you know, uh, ensuring that 80% of your food is from whole foods, uh, ensuring that you're having protein at every meal. I usually typically recommend at least 7,000 steps per day for patients, um, There's uh, in the three times a week, resistance training is one of the big things we focus on two times a week, cardiovascular training or recovery type training. So something like yoga or stretching or even a massage or something that they took a mental health break for themselves. And so it's looking at that and saying, you know, maybe I'm doing a really good job of getting my water in, but maybe my next step would be focusing on getting in my steps.
0: I love how you say focus on what am I doing well, and then what do I want to improve? Do you encourage people to focus on one thing at a time in terms of what they're tackling that they want to improve?
1: I think it kind of depends on the patient. I think it can be helpful because patients will often, especially people with diabetes, if you're talking about perhaps they may need another medication to further control their, di- their disease, and they say, you know, I'll, I'll just do better. And, you know, we all just want to do better every day. But if you don't have a plan for that, then it's not really it's not going to be effective. Right. So we look at that worksheet And maybe simultaneously they are working on increasing their water and they're like, okay, I'm going to put a water bottle at my desk where I'm working from home. I'm going to get up and fill it up three or four times a day. And that's going to help me get my steps. So it kind of depends on the person, their capacity, what else is going on in their life, uh, what things are already doing well, what things they think they can easily add. But essentially it has to be a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, uh, all of those things that make it something they can actually do between now and the next appointment.
0: So do you notice that people who track behaviors are more likely to be successful than those who don't? I guess it depends how you
1: define a measure of success, right? I find that people that track behaviors are more engaged in the process. They recognize when those behaviors are helping them to feel good. It helps them to get back on track when perhaps they feel that they're off track. And those are all for me, measures of success, right? And I talk about this with my patients. The success is not losing the 10 pounds. The success is I had a bad weekend, but I've gotten back on track at the next meal or, you know, I put my shoes on and went for a walk even when I wasn't feeling like it. So I think people that do track those things tend to see when they're falling off and tend to have a better strategy for getting back on track.
0: I love this definition of success, kind of away from the number on the scale, which we really can't control more to the things that are within our control, like behaviors, like getting back on track, things like that.
1: Yeah, I think that it helps people to see their health a bit more holistically. We know that the scale can vary day to day, week to week. There are so many things that affect that. Some people do want to do objective measures, and maybe you're measuring your waist circumference or something like that. Um, But yeah, I think we know that tracking behaviors tend to have a better quality of life. Um, At least I see that with my patients.
0: So Dr. Ternasti, there are lifestyle components of weight management that are important, and we've talked about some of those. But for many people, diet and exercise alone aren't enough to help them reach a healthier weight. And that's where medical treatments can make a big difference. Can you talk about the treatments that are available now?
1: Yeah, you're right, Ainsley. And I think too, I don't want to be, I don't want to oversell this uh, sheet that I give out as a, as like the main factor in weight management. We know that intensive lifestyle Programs, uh, in addition to patient-led changes in diet and activity are super important. Uh, So for a lot of physicians, you may actually need to refer your patients to a more comprehensive lifestyle program. Um, There's lots available both online and in your local cities in person as well, depending on your patient's preference. Then we do have medications. I think that's kind of been the elephant in the room in uh, the media lately, but there's a variety of different medications with different side effect profiles, different mechanisms of action. We've got kind of three main classes of medication. Typically, those are used in patients who have a BMI of over 27 with medical comorbidities or in patients who have a BMI of over 30. And then we also have the option of uh, bariatric surgery. And again, there are many different procedures now uh, for bariatric surgery. And typically, at least here in um, Ontario, in Canada, often we use the criteria of BMI of over 35 with medical conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, uh, acid reflux disease, uh, coronary artery disease, uh, or, or a BMI of over 40 those individuals also qualify independent of medical conditions.
0: Well, you said that when people come in, they, they usually say it's my hormones. And I know a lot of people feel like it's their thyroid that has caused their weight gain. Is this true for a lot of people? So,
1: I mean, I think it's hard because there's so many symptoms from thyroid disease potentially that often overlap when we're not living our healthiest life. So sleep, fatigue, um, you know, there's so many stressors in life and they can make you feel run down and tired and make you feel like you're retaining weight. And, but if you look at the literature, there was a large study looking at patients with a TSH of over 10 and the, and the average weight loss was 0.1 kilograms. So even in treated patients with overt hypothyroidism, weight loss is minimal, which tells us that it's probably not the thyroid. And even if you are experiencing some of those symptoms of feeling sluggish or retaining weight, they are most often not your thyroid. It is a very common disease. And absolutely, if you meet that criteria, you should be treated for a variety of reasons. Um, But I think we're quick to blame the thyroid when sadly, it may not actually be the cause.
0: So how do the hormonal changes that women go through in menopause affect weight? And are those hormonal changes the reason for weight gain that many women experience when they're going through menopause?
1: Oh, this is such a tricky question. And I'm going to say simply no, Um, but there are some... I think some qualifications there. So, one is that there was a recent study on looking at metabolism over time and people, you know, concerned that their metabolism slows down in their 30s or their 40s. We really don't see it slow down until people are in their 60s. That's all comers, men and women. There was also a really large population study out of the US that looked at women of all different ethnicities. They interviewed women who were pre, peri, and postmenopausal. There was no difference in weight between the groups overall. They looked at a subset of these patients throughout their pre, peri, and postmenopausal period. And again, there was no significant difference in their weight. I think a couple things that we need to keep in mind around menopause is that typically that's when women tend to experience some muscle loss. And if you're not actively engaged in resistance training, you're going to lose that muscle. And that's what's really burning our calories at rest. So if you make no other changes in your daily life, and you're eating the same amount, but you're not burning as much, that can over time create a situation where there is weight gain. Um, But more specifically, where there's an increase in fat mass, and then that can affect your body composition, um, which is really what we are talking about when we're talking about um, weight and health is actually fat mass is what we should be focusing on. We say weight a lot, but we should be saying adiposopathy or um, uh, fat loss. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing too, is that there's a lot of changes in people's lives around that time. Are you retiring from work? Are you caring for grandchildren? You know, has your activity changed? Were you actively commuting to work? I think a lot of the things that people may have noticed during the COVID period um, happens around the same time at menopause. So are those things factoring in and changing body composition, uh, body weight and our overall general day to day um, activities?
0: So I hear you saying two things. One, resistance training is really the key to make sure that we're not losing that muscle mass that is really contributing to to burning calories. And then two, really looking at the things that are changing in our lives that happen to coincide with menopause that may not be caused by menopause that may be driving some weight gain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Those are probably my two biggest take-home points about the
0: perimenopausal period. And if there was one thing that could help your patients be more successful with reaching a healthier weight, what would it be?
1: I think resistance training is it, right? So I think it's important for all patients because we talk about weight loss, but what we really mean is fat loss, right? So when you lose weight, you lose fat, you lose muscle, and you lose water. So most people are okay to lose some water, but it's also the reason you need to stay hydrated. Some of that water does come from storage of energy in the liver. That's okay to lose that water, but you do need to stay hydrated, Muscle, you will lose muscle if you lose weight, no matter how you lose weight, unless you actively engage in resistance training. And that way, you can c- continue that basal metabolic rate. And that way, you know. One of the reasons that people get into trouble with yo-yo dieting is that every time they lose weight, they lose muscle. And then when you go back to eating kind of similar to what you were doing before, you now have less muscle burning, less calories. And so you actually often end up at a higher weight than you were at before the loss the weight initially.
0: So Dr. Ternosti, I know a lot of medical visits are covered virtually now, either phone or video. Do you have any suggestions on how a person can make the most of a virtual visit?
1: I think it's really important for patients to treat it like a regular visit. So obviously early in COVID, people were mostly at home. They were ready for their appointments. Then things went off the rails a little bit. And I called somebody and they were in a drive-thru. Like no judgment, but also like that's not going to make an effective appointment, right? You want to be in a quiet room. You need to write down the questions you have before the appointment. You want to make sure that if there's any information your physician's going to be asking for, If you're using tracking sheets, if you're using a tracking app for any sort of dietary intake, physical activity, that kind of thing, have all of that information ready and available. You could even send it to your physician ahead of time, say, have it available to them. It's going to make for a, a much more fruitful conversation.
0: So almost pretend that we're going in person, you know, be ready, have your questions ready, take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tsunasti, let's talk a little bit about BMI. Is BMI something that a person should be paying attention to? Like, is it a useful measure? I wouldn't suggest it on the individual level. Um, It's honestly,
1: it's got its pros and cons. It, I think it's more so designed for us as health professionals, quick, easy way to kind of have an idea of, you know, weight to height ratio. We've used it a lot in um, our criteria for medication use or for surgery. That is debatable as well. I think we're seeing more moving towards something like the Edmonton obesity scoring system where individuals, we look at them holistically and how their weight is impacting their overall health because that's really what matters. Um, But I think as a As something that can be used maybe in research purposes or across different countries with different levels of resources to try and categorize things, I think it can be somewhat useful in those situations. Is that something an individual needs to be tracking? I don't think it's the most important thing. I don't think it gives them a lot of information about how they're doing or where they're headed or what's going on depending on their structure. I mean, we hear it all the time, but like if you look at an NFL player and you put them on a a BMI, like it's uh, not going to tell you what you need to know about that person's health. So it has its limitations. I don't think it's for the individual level. I think there's roles for it perhaps in research. Should we be using it as a cutoff for um, medical or surgical treatment? That's also debatable.
0: So is emotional eating a challenge for some of the folks that you work with? Did they tell you that? Yeah, I guess it's kind of like, how do you define emotional
1: eating, right? Like we have so many emotions and fo- food is such a huge part of our our emotional scale, right? It's part of celebration. It's part of joy. I mean, I, it was my sister's birthday yesterday and I got her some donuts. So, you know, there it's involved everywhere. I think, you know, we kind of, when we say emotional eating, maybe we picture somebody crying into a pint of ice cream, right? I think it's about recognizing where food is fitting in your life intentionally and unintentionally. So are you reaching for a high carb food when you go home from work? Is that because you've not fueled yourself well all day? Is that because you're stressed about the events at work? And so identifying where that food behavior is coming from, and then also trying to develop strategies to reduce those unwanted behaviors. Does that mean fueling yourself better during the day? For me, it means if, I come home, I'm going to put on my shoes and go outside for a walk and get some fresh air because I know that I'm going to feel way better for the rest of the day if I do that than if I open up the cupboard and do a rummage, you know? So I think it's about trying to more so identify what's triggering you to eat foods, how you feel when you eat them, and then what we can do to kind of avoid eating the foods that are not productive to you.
0: You know, as we were talking about this in our Facebook group, I think a lot of people were realizing that boredom is often one of the real feelings that triggers eating. So I think you're right. Kind of having a plan for like, if I feel bored at night after dinner, I'm going to do this as opposed to like rummaging through the cupboard for some snacks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a patient who told me that they only eat chips when uh, there's a hockey game on. I'm like, well... (laughs) There's a lot of hockey games on, so maybe we reserve those for a specific team or maybe reserve those for playoffs or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, it's it's true. Like what's triggering us, right? Is it behavior? Is it emotion? If there is emotion there, maybe you do need something more significant. Maybe you need to see a psychologist. Maybe that needs to be treated on a higher level than just recognition, um, but also to develop some healthier habits that can replace what you're trying to do with that food
0: last question for you dr ternasti what is the number one thing you wish everyone knew about weight loss to be patient
1: with yourself don't don't let what you want to achieve in 12 weeks impact what you can achieve in 12 months weight loss is slow behavior change is slow focus on those behaviors focus on doing things that are positives in your life focus on things that make you feel good don't do things just for the sake of weight loss. If you don't like running, don't run. You know, focus on things that you like, things that you enjoy, build habits that improve your day-to-day life, and and then you'll achieve best weight, right? So. Don't worry about the number on the scale. Don't worry about those things. Do things every day that make you feel better, that make you live a longer, more functional life. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what we all really want. And I say to my patients, I think at the end of the day, you just want to be able to wipe your own butt for as long as you can. And that's what it's about. And whatever the number is on the scale that we, you know, some random physicist or whatever came up with, that doesn't matter as much as just doing things that make you feel good.
0: Such a great way to finish the show. Dr. Tanasi. thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Please stay safe and take good care. Good night.